as we continue in our series, Joy in the Journey, Paul is now going to teach us how you and I can have joy even in the midst of the junk of life. You see, there's problems in this life, right? It doesn't take us long to realize that there is garbage. But you and I don't have to let the garbage keep us from God. And what Paul is going to teach us here is the priority of our personal relationships absolutely matters because if we get that priority messed up, we will lose our joy. And we're going to look at an acronym for joy, J-O-Y. Jesus, others, you. Do you see the priority of personal relationships? Jesus, others, you. But so often we want to start with me, right? And we don't make it about the master, and therefore we don't make it about ministering to other people. Isn't it amazing how we want to so gravitate towards self, and yet when we do, there's so little satisfaction and joy in our lives, right? You and I will never find joy in selfishness. We find it in the Savior, serving others, and then self. So let me ask you, if you were to be honest with yourself before God this morning, do you have a proper priority in your relationships? Or have there been times this week where you have found yourself letting self get ahead of the Savior? Because for me, when self gets in the way of the Savior, I never ever get to serving anyone but me. Turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Philippians 1, 3. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. And whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you. For you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and how I long for you with a tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more, overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in the knowledge and understanding for I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Do you notice Paul starts here with Jesus? And do you notice how he starts? It's a personal relationship with Jesus. He says, whenever I think of you, I what? I'm thankful and I give thanks to my God. Don't miss that word, my God. Mark that, underline that. Paul is stating something for you when I hear that it is about a personal relationship with Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm thankful to the God or a God. He says, my God. David said the exact same thing in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, not a shepherd, not the shepherd. He is my shepherd. And so I want to ask you, do you have a personal relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross today? 
are you saved? Has there been a point in your life where you've gotten honest with God and you've admitted that you're a sinner and you have cried out for Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? Because if you have, then you have Jesus in the midst of the junk. Therefore, you can have joy. But there are some of you today, you don't have joy. You know why? Because you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Every one of us is on this, this journey called life. The question is, who are we on the journey with? And for many of us, we're alone in this journey because we don't really truly have Jesus. There are some of us today, we have, we're saved, but we really don't have that personal relationship in that we, we trusted him for salvation. But somewhere along the way, we started to substitute the Savior for other things. And we walked away from Jesus. Jesus didn't walk away from us. We walked away from him. And so what happened? We lost our joy because we're just making it about the journey today and we're not making it about the journey with Jesus. Second thing that you need to see here is that it's not just a personal relationship with Jesus. It is also about proclaiming the name of Jesus. So many of us have bought into this false theology today that it's just me and Jesus. That, that I can just have, the, have Christ separate from the church But you see, you can't just have the head. You have to have the body. And it says here that this isn't just about a personal relationship with Jesus. There should be an overflow of that personal relationship. And that should be partnering with other people to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says here, you've been partners with me. That that you and I, if we're really making it about Jesus and that's where our joy is, then we want to tell other people about this joy, this life, this, this salvation that we have discovered, right? So can I ask you a question? Who did you share Jesus with this week? If you're just flat out honest, you don't have to put your hand up. Did you share Jesus with anybody? How much of your life are you spending talking about self and how much of your life are you talking talk about the Savior? Paul was in prison. Paul could have had a pity party. There's a lot of reasons that we can have pity parties in this life. Here's the thing. Many of us are missing opportunities to proclaim Jesus. Why? Because we're sitting around having pity parties. Why? Because of our condition, because of our circumstance, instead of about Christ. Here's what Paul understood about his current position. He was in prison. But he didn't see it as a problem. He saw it as an opportunity to proclaim Jesus. Here's the thing. Your current circumstances are not a crisis. They are an opportunity to share Christ in the midst of the crisis. What are you proclaiming today? What are you making the focus? Christ? Or your crisis, your social media. How much of your social media do you spend proclaiming Jesus? We spend a huge amount of our time on social media promoting our problems, promoting politics, promoting our personal preferences, all the things that we like. But how much of our time are we spending really, truly promoting what matters, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, Paul reminds us here about our perfection. And he tells us that his confidence is tied to Jesus Christ. And he reveals a little bit about this process to perfection here. And he says, my confidence is tied to Christ. Why? Because unlike man who starts lots of projects and doesn't finish them, look around your house when you get home, okay? And ladies, don't go show your husband the honeydew list. That's not, that's not where I'm going with that, okay? 
Unlike you and I that start lots of things that we don't finish, he's saying Christ is going to bring to completion what he started at your conversion. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves today is, where's my confidence? Where or in who am I placing my confidence? How do you know? When you and I go through the trials of life, the people that we run to, the places that we go, will reveal where we've tied our trust. Paul here could not find his confidence in his circumstances. He was in chains. There are going to be times in your life where you tie your confidence to your circumstances and your circumstances change and you realize that you have a major problem in your life because there's no longer confidence because there's been a change in your circumstances. Some of you have. to the prisons of your past. And you become more defined by your problems, by your past, by your pain, by your failure, than by your faith and the forgiveness of God the Father. Some of us, we are tying our confidence today to our cash. Talking about cash, does anybody actually have any cash on them? Not a credit card, not a check. Okay, if you've got some cash, would you pull it out? I need it for a sermon illustration. This is the part where Christians turn into molasses. Just kidding. Oh, man, look at that. What else you got in there? I want you guys to know, this will work, thank you. I want you guys to know he pulled out everything. Okay? Normally when people give cash to the preacher, it's like, well, I see now why. You're right, it's all once. Just kidding, just kidding. Does, any actually, does anybody actually have something other than a one? It could be a five. One's work. There, youth pastors got cash, man. It's a first in the church. Wow. I'm going to frame this. That's awesome. It's a 10. Maybe you need to change professions. <laughs> you know what all this has in common? Let me read it to you. It doesn't matter if it's a $10 bill or a $1 bill. It says this, in God we trust. Here's what it says on the 10, in God we trust. Could be a 5, could be a 20, it still says in God we trust. Could be a 50, could be a 100, right? Now this was yours, right? Is that correct? (laughs) That's the second in the church, preacher gave money back. Can I ask you, what are you banking on? Is it what's in your account or is it the Almighty? Many of us today, we're counting on our cash. We just don't realize that until we get in these tight spots of life and then we start to panic. Why? Because <laughs> we made it about a paycheck, made it about a cash, made it about money. It's really not about the Messiah. Some of us today, we, we're confident in our careers. That's where our confidence comes from. It's got a really good career. It could end. It could change. And what happens to our confidence? It's absolutely shattered, right? Some of us today, we're defining ourselves by our status instead of the Savior based on our careers. Some of us today, we're basing our confidence on our ability instead of on the Almighty. See, our confidence is now tied to the gift instead of the giver of that gift. Who gave you that gift of ability? God, right? And so what do we do? We start to tie our confidence 
to the gift and not to the giver. And then what happens? At some point, we lose that ability and what happens to our confidence? Some of you right now, you're, you're in a crisis in your life because there's a change of career coming because some abilities that you used to have are disappearing. And the reason it's a crisis for you is you suddenly discovered in your life that you've tied your confidence to the gift instead of the giver of the gift. But when you tie your confidence to the giver and not to the gift, here's what can happen. You can lose your ability, but you didn't lose the Almighty. Therefore, you still have confidence in Christ, right? You and I need to understand that wherever we tie our confidence will be where we tie our trust. Now, this is just a plain old chair. Nothing special about this chair. You're sitting in one right now, and you're displaying a certain element of confidence, right? Can I ask you, how did you sit down in that chair this morning? How many of you walked up and you went? Here's what you did. Why were you so relaxed about it? Here's why you were relaxed. You had confidence that chair would hold you up, right? And so because you had confidence, you tied your trust, and so therefore you could relax, and you didn't have to figure everything out. You didn't have to worry about it. And you've learned over time, you know what? This chair's going to hold me up. I'm good. Now, here's the thing. You can't hold yourself up, right? Not when you're sitting like this, not for very long. And so... You're relying. Jesus for our eternal salvation. We just don't trust him for our everyday situation. And so you know what we do? We start to put our confidence in people. Now, it's okay to trust people. You need to trust people. It's part of a healthy relationship. Trust is the foundation of relationship. The question is, what are you trusting them for? And many of us, especially in marriage and parenting, what we start doing is we start putting our confidence in people and their ability to bring us to perfection. I'll marry the right person. I can become the person I really want to be. Man, man, I have kids, then I'll change, right? You'll change. (laughs) Maybe not to what you want. It may just bring out some ugliness in your life. And so what happens? We're trusting people to, to change us to become more like Christ, and they fail because who's the one that we're placing our confidence? Paul says only Christ can bring you to completion, right? What he started at conversion. People didn't start. People didn't save you. Jesus saved you. He's the only one that can change you. Okay? And so what happens is when people start to fail us, we get hurt in our heart and we withdraw from people. And sometimes we physically withdraw. We become loners. But most of the time what we do is we build these walls up around ourselves. We isolate ourselves. Some of you... You seem to be outgoing extroverts, the life of the party, the whatever, but the truth is you're dying on the inside. No one really knows who you are because you've walled off your heart from people. Why? Because you've been hurt. But what if the real problem wasn't people? 
What if the real problem was you were putting your trust in people to do something they couldn't do and you set them up for failure? What if the real issue isn't pulling away from people, but it's drawing closer to Jesus Christ? Where are you placing your confidence today? Is it in Christ or some other chair in your life? Because here's what happens to those chairs at some point. They don't hold us up. At some point, they're going to fail, but Jesus Christ will never fail. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He's the only one that can carry you, support you, hold you up in the midst of the storm. We see that in Peter's life, right? Peter stepped out of the boat. The boat couldn't save him. He was panicked in the boat. And he started to sink. What was the only thing that made a difference in his life? Trust in Jesus, right? What are you clinging to? Because for some of us, we're clinging to these chairs. And they're not, they're not going to change our lives. They're not really going to sustain us in the hard storms of life. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. God works all things for good for those that love him. And what is the good there? We become more like God. We become more like Jesus Christ, right? Here's our problem. We want God to use all the good things for our good. That's not what it says. It says he will use all things for our good. That means the painful things. That means the problematic things. Do you understand that problems in the hand of an almighty God are nothing more than pathways to perfection in your life? Jesus Christ is bringing you to completion, right? And he can use the problems of life. He can use the pain of life. And when you and I understand that, we stop seeing problems as roadblocks and we start to see them as detours of God getting us where we need to go. And when that happens in our life, we stop praying for God to remove the problems and we start praying for God to use the problems. Are you praying for God just to remove problems in your life or to use the problems in your life? Because church, here's the reality. We grow in the groaning times, not the good times, right? And so if God's just going to use all the good things for our good, what good is it? And so it's in those times we go through these groaning times and we don't like those times. And I'm not saying we pray for problems. I'm saying that we pray for God to use the problems in our life to change us so that we become more like Christ. Because here's the thing. When God just removes the problems and changes your circumstances, your circumstances change, but you don't change. And the goal is not a change in your circumstances. It's a change in you so that we become more like Christ. And God doesn't have a problem using crisis to start to make you to become more like Christ. Our problem is that in this pathway of perfection, we start to focus on the process. God's focused on the product, Christ, right? Now, imagine if God's using problems and he's using crisis, that's the process to produce the product of you becoming more like Christ, and you're focused on the process. What are you focused on? The pain, the problems, the heartache, right? The crisis. And what happens? We're like, well, if this is the way Christianity is, I'm out of here. Why? Because we're so focused on the process today instead of on the product. Can I encourage you to do something in your life? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and Christ has started the work of conversion and he is going to bring it to completion, would you do this? Stop focusing on the process and start focusing on the progress. You're not who you used to be. And so many of us, we get discouraged. We walk away from God because we don't see a change. Why? Because we're so focused on the process that we don't see the progress. 
Now you notice here that you and I are not just trusting Christ, we're trusting his timetable when Christ returns. Any pastor that tells you he's figured that out, one of two things are true. He's either mentally unstable or he's a liar. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. And here's the thing, I don't need to know. All I need to know is he is coming back, right? That's enough information. And here's the thing, when he comes back, there's completion. So that means it's his timetable, right? And what happens is we so rush the timetable of God and we force the timetable of God. And many of us, we run ahead of God and we get ourselves into an absolute mess. How many of us today are focused on the junk instead of focusing on Jesus, number one? Number two, oh, others. Do you notice here that Paul is not afraid to share his love for other people. We have bought into this stoic Christianity. It's amazing to me when I read about this guy named Paul who was like a man's man. This guy, this guy was beaten. This guy was whipped four different times, 39 lashes, one less than what would kill a man. And he kept coming back for Jesus, kept coming back for Jesus. It's like amazing, Right? He goes into prison, and what does he do? He prays, and he praises Jesus. This is a real man. But you notice as a real man, he's not afraid to be honest and say, man, I absolutely love you. I am so passionate for you and Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And yet we become stoic. We can't, we can't really share our feelings unless they get offended. And then somehow we're able to, we're so offended today, Right? That's not the kind of feelings that we need to be showing to the world. We need to show the feelings of love. And Paul lavishes this love on people. Parents, what would happen if you loved your kids the way Paul loved his spiritual kids? Husbands, wives, what would happen in your marriage if you would just allow love to overflow? Paul walked it. Paul talked it. Your talk, is it the language of love? Your walk. Does it reveal a lifestyle of love? Do you notice here that nine times Paul's in prison and nine times he says, you, 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 you. I wonder if we were in prison. Would the prevalent pronoun be I? How many of us today are so self-absorbed in the problems that we're going through and we've never taken a look out the window at who is it that God's placed in my life to love. And you notice what Paul does here? First thing, he wants to praise God for the people in his life. That's called thanksgiving. I wonder today how much are we caring for people and how much are we complaining about people? And I just mentioned this about being so easily offended today. But we have become so critical in our minds. And you notice what Paul says here? When I think about you, I thank God for you. Do you notice the tie between what you think about and what you're thankful for? What do you think your, your, your thought life is, or your talk life is going to be if your thought life is one of criticism and complaining? And some of us in our marriages, we walk around and we are critical of everything our spouse does, right? That's our thought life, our secret thought life. And we're constantly critical. 
What kind of communication do you think you're going to have with people? You're going to be constantly critical of them, right? You see, your thought life will affect your talk life. How you think about people will determine how you talk to people. Paul says, when I think about you, here's a challenging question. What would people say if they revealed what they think about you? What kind of thoughts do you have about other people? Every one of us, we want to bring joy into people's lives. The question is, do we? And often the failure starts in our thought life. And what happens in our thought life affects our tongue, right? Do people come to you because they know that you love them and you care for them? Or are people very aware of your critical spirit? Do people walk away from you carrying unmerited guilt because of the conversations, the kinds of things that you talk about based on what you think about? Do people just avoid you altogether because they know that you're so self-absorbed, that you're so busy, that you're not going to take time for them? And even if they did have a conversation with you, it would be one side. It would be all about you. It wouldn't be about them. Do people avoid even having a conversation with you because they see that sin in your life and they see a discrepancy between your words and your walk and they conclude you're a hypocrite and no one wants help from a hypocrite? Or do people see that caring compassion in your heart? Do people know, yes, you're busy, but you're a servant and you'll take time and you're faithful and they can count on you? Paul says, when I think about you, who are these people he's thinking about? It's the church. Are these the kinds of thoughts that we're having about our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? And who were his brothers and sisters? Who were the church at Philippi? Remember two weeks ago in Acts 16, we saw a tender-hearted woman, a tormented woman, and a toughened man. This tender-hearted woman was Lydia. And she had this tender heart, and, and Paul opens up the Scriptures. God opens up her heart. She opens up her home. Do you see a transformed, changed life? And she says, use my house as a ministry center to reach people for Jesus in my community. That's a changed life. This tormented woman who was tormented by a demon, and Paul casts this demon down, and she goes from being a slave of Satan to a slave of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a changed life. This toughened man who's this jailer who has no problem watching Paul and Silas being beat bloody, he has no problem locking them with all of their wounds in the stockades, in the inner dungeon. And then Paul and Silas, who could have had a pity party, at midnight, at the darkest part of the day, choose to pray and they choose to praise God. And we see the power of praise blows off the doors of the jail, breaks their chains. And for some of you, you're chained up today because you're not praising Jesus. You're, you're, you're proclaiming your problems. And the jailer runs in and he sees all these inmates and he thinks they've all left, right? They've all run away. And what happens? He concludes that the solution to the problems of his life is suicide. And yet Paul shares with him there is a solution and it's the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are thinking about that in your mind. No one would miss me. I would. There's a lot of other believers in this room that would miss you. You're loved. And the solution to your problems, no matter how big, is never death. It is always life. It is always the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And here's what he says as he gets down on his knees. Think about that. The jailer, the one in charge, kneels before the prisoner and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And that day he was a changed man. And he goes from being this toughened man to this tender man who takes care of them and he takes them home and he tends their wounds. Isn't it amazing that the jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's respect. And we have so bought into this culture today that if I really live for Jesus Christ, no one will respect me. Garbage. Yes, we are experiencing a change in our country where people are more open and defiant towards Jesus. Jesus said that would happen, right? We are enemies of God before we come to Jesus Christ through the cross. You're just getting to see the real heart of man right now. But I'm telling you, if you walk with Jesus, if you trust Jesus, if you pray in the midst of your problems, and there is praise in your life, people will respect you and look up to you. And you will be amazed at all the different people in your life. And you're not doing it for that reason. But people will have a godly respect for people that live for holiness and not just happiness. And you know what Paul says here? Lydia, former tormented slave girl, hardened jailer, you're my joy. Is that where your joy's at today? Can you honestly say that you are joyful for God's kids? We have not just created a culture of complaining about our country, but we have created a culture of complaining about the church, and we're not caring for people because we're so caught up criticizing people. Now, why For most of us, are we not finding our joy in our personal relationships? And I think it has to do with how we carry people today. Paul uses a very interesting statement here. He says this. You're in my heart. You see that? Underline that. You have a special place in my heart. Do you notice what he's saying here? I don't just have you in my head. Those are the thoughts. But those thoughts in my head filter down into my heart. And where I'm really carrying you is in my heart, not just in my head. Now, why is that important? Because how you carry people will determine how you care for people. And what's interesting here is that for most of us today, we're not carrying people in our hearts. You see, many of us are trying to carry people on our backs today. Until we start making these statements... Get off my back. Teenagers, you say that, right, to your parents. Get off my back. You're just a pain in my neck. Well, whose fault's that? What are you carrying people on your back for? Some of us, we're carrying people in our gut. I think many marriages, we carry our spouse in our gut, right? Until we get to this point where we make this statement, I can't stomach you any longer. Why can't you stomach people? Because you're carrying them in your gut. Not in your heart. We carry people on our nerves until they get on our nerves. Is it any wonder today that we have ulcers, that we're having emotional breakdowns, that we have high blood pressure, and I think the majority of that has to do with our relational wreckage because we won't carry people in our hearts. Now, guys, 
Do you know why it's such a big deal when you go and you buy your spouse or your girlfriend flowers? And it is not Valentine's Day. It's not her birthday. It's not your anniversary. And it's not the day after the preacher talks about buying flowers. (laughs) Underline that. Why is it such a big deal when you buy her flowers on just an everyday, ordinary day? Here's why. It has nothing to do with the flowers. It has to do with this. She knows that you're thinking about her when she's not around. Now, why is that a big deal? Because where are you carrying her? In your head? In your heart? You see, when you and I are carrying people in our heart, we care for them, even when we're not with them. Do you see here that Paul, he could have had a pity party about his prison problem, but instead, what is he doing? He's caring for people. He's praising people. Why? Because he's carrying them in his heart. You see, it's here that we also see that he not only praises God for people, but he prays to God for people. How active is your prayer life? It is so easy for us to get so busy with everything but talking to God. Here's a second question. How much of your prayer life is spent talking to God about you? And how much of your prayer life is spent talking to God about other people? How much do you pray for self and how much do you pray for other people in your life? Most of us, we don't pray for other people until we have a problem, right? And you know what happens when we only pray when we have problems with people? The prayer revolves around the problem, not the person. And I want to encourage you, pray for people. Don't wait to have a problem with people to pray for them. Be proactive in your prayer life. I had a guy call me this week, and he was like, Hey, Giles, I'm getting ready to share Jesus with a guy, and I don't know if he knows Jesus or not. But, but I'm going to share Jesus with him, and I want you to pray for me and to pray for him. I want you to partner with me in prayer. What a privilege. Come to find out, that guy is now going to be involved in a ministry that that guy heads up. Why? Because he was proactive. He asked for prayer. Who are you right now? currently praying for and you know Paul didn't just pray for people he partnered with people that takes humility that takes teamwork that takes it's not about me and my plan it is about God's plan are you partnering with your spouse in your marriage so God gets the glory are you partnering with your spouse in parenting so that God gets the glory are you partnering in your small group. You want to know the number one reason most churches split? We stop partnering to proclaim Jesus and we start making it about our preferences. Right now I can ask the question. Don't answer please. How many are too hot? How many are too cold? How many are just right? You just split the church three ways. Based on what? Preference. Your personal preference is to where you're at right now. No. Next week that may change. Your preferences may change. And all of a sudden, you're in this group, but not on that group. But you see, when we make it about proclaiming Jesus Christ, and that's the plan, not our preference, all of a sudden, we unite the church. Why? Because it's all about Christ. It's about His plan. It's about proclaiming Jesus. It's not about my personal preference. Now, here, when we talk about others, is probably, I think, arguably, the hardest part. 
unspoken, but it's clearly suggested in this passage, and that is patience for people. Because here's what Paul says, what Jesus started at conversion, he's bringing to completion, but they're not there yet, right? That means they're not perfect yet. Can I ask you a question? If you're not perfect because Christ is still in the process of completing you, then why do you expect the people around you to be perfect? Now, this isn't a license for us to sin. I hear this all the time. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. You might want to deal with your mouth because that's a heart issue. And so many of us, we're sort of using that as an excuse. Well, I still sin a lot. I recognize the sin. I just want to deal with the sin. That's just who I am. Think that's who God wants you to be? Is that who Christ is? You see, we need to be changed. And as long as we resist God and we just say it's okay to sin, guess what? There's not going to be that change in our life. But here's the reality. If you're dealing with another believer and there's been an authentic, true conversion, not just feelings, absolute faith in Jesus Christ, then they're in the process of perfection. But they haven't arrived yet. That means you've got to be patient with the person and patient with the process, right? Which means we got to start being patient with God. When I'm not patient with people, you know what I'm saying? God, you're taking too long. You messed up, but don't worry. I can fix it. You know what I tend to do? I make an absolute mess of things. When Angel and I were first married, we for almost four years, took care of kids for the state of Nebraska. We went on a three-day honeymoon. We came back. We had four teenage boys who stole cars, were court-ordered by a judge to live with us because if they couldn't live in our group home, they would have had to go to juvenile jail. And the judge at that time realized that, you know what, if these kids are ever going to figure out what it really looks like to live in a family, they need to go live with a family. We came to live with Angel and I. We were their mom and dad. We showed them what marriage should look like. We, we parented them. We loved them. We prayed for them. We took them to their sporting events. We enrolled them in school. We were there at parent-teacher conferences. And I'll never forget, one year, towards the very end of the year, I got a call from the principal. Some of you parents may have experienced this. If you have, I'll pray for you. Giles, we've got a problem with one of your kids. Right? It's not what any parent wants. So I drove to the school, I walk in, and here is one of my kids, 16 years of age, sitting in the principal's office, and the principal says this to both of us. This kid is failing every single class. What are you going to do about that problem? And here's what I said. Well, we're going home, and we're going to throw a party, and here's why. This is the first time in his life that he's ever completed a semester in a school without getting kicked out for fighting. And for me, that's progress. That was my goal. Sorry it wasn't your goal. And I understand as a principal, you're focused on the grades. But here's the deal. You also had the playbook. You knew his background. But you got so focused on the problem that you missed the progress. Now, I guarantee you the goal next year is this. C's and D's. You okay with that? Can I tell you he went on to make A's and B's? But we're trashing people today. Why? Because we're focused on the problem and not on the process. On the progress, excuse me. And I want to encourage you, in, in people's lives, there are going to be problems. 
but I want you to trust and give God room to grow people. Don't, don't come in, husbands, don't come in and, and micromanage your wife or micromanage your kids or just try to force them. Because most of us today, what we're doing with our parenting is behavioral modification. Jesus is interesting in changing the heart. And as a parent, you want your kids doing the right thing because it's in their heart, not just in their head because you force them to do it. Three things should be true of every single Christian. Number one, I'm not who I used to be. Amen. Number two, I'm not yet who I'm going to be. But number three, I am the person who's going to work with God to get me there. Are you working with God or, or, or are you resisting his work in your heart? You see, it's here that now you and I come to why? You. Paul prays this prayer for himself and he prays this for us and he reminds us of the goal. And what is the goal? That God gets great glory. Not just some of the glory, God gets all the glory. And how does that happen when we allow the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to overflow our lives? In other words, it cannot be contained that we are so living in a way, contagious Christianity, that we can't contain Jesus Christ in this mortal container and it spills over and that love lavishes richly the people around us. Do you realize that what's in you will come out of you? And some of us, we have allowed our lives to be filled with regret, guilt, failure, disappointment, anger, bitterness, resentment. And so when people bump into us, what comes out? What overflows our life? It's not the love of the Lord. Many of you have seen that little meme on Facebook where the guy's like got the coffee cup and the coffee's spilling out, right? And the guy asks the question, why would you spill my coffee? And he's like, well, because that's what was in the cup. What's in you will come out of you. Here's what I really think it should look like when two Christians collide. Ministry's messy. But I hope that when you and your spouse collide, I hope the world gets to see the lavish love of Jesus Christ. Because what's in you pours out of you. How do you and I cultivate that kind of love? Because some of you right now, you're like, that's not what's coming out of my cup. (laughs) It ain't going to be no heart. It's going to be messy, but no heart. How do you cultivate that? Paul says that one of the first things that we need to do here is we need to deepen our discernment. You notice he says we're to grow in our knowledge of Jesus why so that we can discern, we can understand what really matters. And the word to discern there is like an Isaiah who goes around, whether it's coins or, or metal, and he's, he's looking to see what is the true value of that metal. Is there worth there or am I just dealing with a chunk of coal? I love how the message phrases this, paraphrases. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent and not sentimental gush. Some of us, our love is just sentimental gush. Sentimental gush is not going to keep your marriage together. Sentimental gush is not going to cut it when it comes to parenting your kids. Sentimental gush is not going to come uh, cut it when we start confronting the culture that does have a clue of what it looks like to be loved but desperately wants to be loved. You see, what he's saying here is it starts where? Our thinking, our head. And you and I, we need to recognize that today. Because here's the thing. Love without truth is sentimentality. But truth without love is brutality. Do you truly have a real love, the kind of love that Jesus Christ had, a sacrificial love, not a self-serving love, a love that that 
didn't try to get people to jump through hoops. Unconditional. Some of us in our marriages, we don't have a marriage. We've got a circus. We've got all these hoops, and some of them are on fire, and we're going, honey, come, jump through the flaming hoop. Then you can have love. Can't figure out why our wife won't respond. Can't think, figure out why my husband won't respond. We weren't created to jump through hoops. Here's the reality. You and I have to have authentic love that that stops with all of these, I'll love you if, I'll love you when, this performance-based kind of love. We're killing our kids today with performance-based love. Do you realize that that teen suicide is on an all-time high? You know why? It's the pressures. They just don't feel loved. They were created to be loved and to love, and they're not doing that. Secondly, he says to you and I here, not only this deepening discernment, but this Christ-like character. Do you notice here, not just in the head, but now we've moved to the heart. You see, what happens in your cranium should change your character. There should be a change in who we are. And he says here, blameless, pure. And that word pure is interesting. It means to be judged by sunlight. Now, what does that mean? First century, when you went shopping, by the way, history lesson, they had not invented the light bulb yet. And even if they had, they didn't have electricity. Okay? And so when you went into the shops, the further back into the shop you went, the less the natural sunlight penetrated. I experienced that as a kid growing up in the Middle East. We would go to these, they called them souks. And it was the old part of town. And you would go back in there, and these guys would be making suits with the old treadle, uh, sewing machines because they didn't have electricity back there. And you'd go in, and the further you went back in the shop, the less sunlight there was. And you'd hold up a garment, and you'd be like, I think this looks... Oh. And you kind of wondered, what does that look like in the light? And the shop owner could see that in your face, and he would be like, come, my friend, come, come, come. And he'd just rush you out of the shop with that item. And you'd be standing out there in the street, and all of a sudden, in the sunlight, judged by sunlight, you would go, oh, wow, yeah. That's the shirt for me. That's the right piece of pottery for me. That's the right piece of material. And what Paul is saying here is that our lives behind closed doors should look the same as they do out in the open street. There shouldn't be a discrepancy. And today we've bought into the lie that our private life can be different than our public life. And church, that's a lie. That's a lack of character. That is not the character of Jesus Christ. You and I need to understand character is that we are the same in a group of people as we are when it's just me and God. And some of us, were chameleon Christians. We're this way at school. We're this way at work. We're this way at church. We're this way at home. And some of us, are, 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 your spouse is about to throw up. You know why? Because you put on your Christian face. And they're like, that's not, that's not who they really are. Because there's not this authentic Christ-like character. Now do you notice the last thing is we're to be filled with fruit. This is the outworking. See what happens in your head goes to your heart and now it shows up in your hands, right? And what is that fruit? The fruit of righteousness. That is doing right things according to God. Not according to the culture. Not according to uh, your school. Not according to whatever. But according to God's word doing things that are right. And do you notice what Paul says here? He says there's no way that you can be filled with that fruit apart from Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say in John 15, 5? He said this, I am the vine, you're the branches. You abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you will accomplish nothing. 
Do you see what Paul's really saying here? Jesus, others, you, Jesus. Why is that important? Because if not, it'll be Jesus, others, you, I got stuck on me again. Right? But you notice it's Jesus, others, you, Jesus. Others, you, Jesus. Others, you, Jesus. Others, Jesus. Do you hear what happened to you? I no longer hear you. Why? Because it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Because here's the desire of God. It's that when people meet you, they meet his son. Would you say that's true in your life? Many of us, were missing the joy today because we've messed up our priority of personal relationships. We're starting with self instead of the Savior. Therefore, we never get to serving. Jesus, others, you. But eventually, it just really looks like Jesus, others, Jesus, others. I don't need to tell you about me. There's really nothing special other than what God did in my life. That's amazing. And that's the story that we need to proclaim, his plan, his work in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for how you bless us. And Father, we want to say thank you. As a pastor, I have so much joy in your people. You have so blessed us with people that love you and want to serve you. And, and Father, we watch churches that have no kids, and you have blessed us, and we got kids crying constantly, and it's just, it's music. It's awesome. And I thank you for that. And I pray that you'd help us to, to be people of prayer and people of praise, and that we wouldn't just get stuck on the problems of life, and we wouldn't lose our joy. Help us to make it about your son, Jesus, to make it about serving others. Help us to make it less about ourselves. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.